Cradeline Network. Judge Dredd Magazine. This episode, we're covering the Judge Dredd Magazine for November and December 1993. That's volume two, issues 42 to 44. This episode, Mechanismo is kaput, and we're once more traveling the world of Judge Dredd as we check in on judges in Calhab and Pan-Africa, plus Missionary Man, Creep, Harkin Burr, and the Taxidermist. And if you want to read along with us from the comics we're covering today in Judge Dredd, the Complete Case Files 20, the Taxidermist Collection, and the Judge Dredd Magazine Issues 350 and 352. How you doing this time, Eli? I'm doing great. Fantastic. Another another year nearly in the books for mm-hmm. we hardy lads of uh, of Big Meg One, you know, getting towards the end here. Got some Christmas time adventures and things like that. Mm. Then we're on to the Maggies. I didn't realize how, how many years have we done already? Is I feel like I th- this is our um, second or third, maybe. No, fourth, I want to say. Wow. Time Let me double flies. check. Yeah. When you're pod when you're having pods right exactly that's the saying everyone says it yeah i guess yeah like two two and a half years i want to okay. say nice like your big you know judge Red magazine one is july 91 mm-hmm. so yeah so 91 92 93 so two and a half mm-hmm. right yeah making our way <laughs> Yeah, but so and hey, speaking of uh, the eternal protagonist of the uh, or the title of the magazine, Eli, let's get started with story one, Judge Dread. Two Judge Dread stories this time. We're starting off with Mechanismo body count reaching the end of this one. Script robot John Wagner, art robot Manuel Bennett, letting robot Tom Frame. So Mechanismo. Eli, Mechanismo number five, specifically, he's a robot judge and he's on the loose. He's just shooting a bunch of party goers, getting them in the back when they run. We see the club owner of the club that these people are at calling it in to the, the actual judges as Mechanismo number five stumps in on his ominous peg leg that I think you mentioned last time. So, junk kind of feel. <laughs> These folks didn't call in a noise violation, so they get a bunch of incendiary rounds right in the face. Oh, they all burn to death as number five walks off into the night. Five minutes later, fire teams are on the scene and number five's long gone. Fifty people are dead and Chief Judge Magruder is furious. The techs all said number five would strike elsewhere, and Magruder's getting increasingly paranoid that um, Dredd is using this as an excuse to take down her administration. Meanwhile, Dredd himself is arriving at a darkened salvage yard. He breaks in and looks around, finding a whole bunch of uh, several-day-old blood splattered along the ground and walls. 
Following the blood trail, he pries open a metal drum, finding the dead bodies of those scavengers we saw last episode inside, all mangled and dead. You know, jar jar stuffed, Eli. It's bad time. Or barrel stuffed, I should say. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the sewers beneath Mega City One, we see Crazy Judge Stitch still looking for number five. But instead, he comes across a fully operational Mark II Judge Bot. Oh, he's all shiny and stuff. Meanwhile, a hover card arrives at the salvage yard, and it's the actual number five. It sees Dredd's lawmaster as it lands, and Dredd sees this and calls it into, patro- into control, asking for assistance. Using its infrared scan, number five finds Dredd and opens fire. Dredd just barely dodges it, leaping through a glass window, and then he fires a high X round right at number five, catching it in the chest with a massive explosion in its robot body. Five reels from the explosion as a second shot by Dredd takes out the left side of its head, including all of its sensors and stuff. The robot rips a grate off the ground and throws it at Dredd, then escapes into the sewer, and Dredd heads down in pursuit, explaining, you know, the scavengers and what's going on to control and stuff, as privately Magruder confirms that they have a Mark II down there in the sewers as well, and she says that it's got to get to the number to number five first, but that's gonna be hard to figure out because the radio signals have trouble penetrating the uh you know, the ground to get back to to control and stuff. Meanwhile, Stitch is following after the, after the Mark II robot, thinking it's uh, the Mark I number five, and in the sewers, Dread and the Mark II track five. Dread starts to faintly hear the cries of Stitch, when through the darkness, five picks up on Dread and fires, but misses. Dread shoots back, and it blows the arm off of the robot, downing it. But then someone else appears. It's the Mark II judge bot. It identifies Dread and goes to finish off Five, even as Dread orders it to stop. Stitch also arrives on the scene, confused the two robots. He wasn't made aware of the fact that there's now Mark II robots being put out in the streets also. The robot says that it's shot because Magruder's orders take precedent over Dread. And mentally, in some rare thought bubbles for Dread, you rarely actually see this in Dread stories... He decides he can't allow the Mark II to have fired the final shot on uh, number five. So instead, he shoots a high X round right into the machine's chest, destroying it. Stitch asks, like, what the hell is going on here, buddy? That guy's sort of a robot judge. That's not cool. And Dredd basically just starts telling him a lie. He says that the Mark II was destroyed by five, a superior machine, despite being partially destroyed. And then Dredd took five out. He convinces Stitch of this story, appealing to his ide- to his vanity and stuff. Like, oh, yes, the machine you built is far better than the Mark II's. But that means that, you know, the changes made to make these robots not be killing humans have also weakened them so i guess we can't have more robot judges out on the streets actually makes that's sort of the plan it's it's convoluted I'll, i'll say that much they walk out of the sewers and dread hopes that uh this deception will keep the mechanisms from rolling out on the streets at least a while longer and before then he's got to figure out just what to do with Magruder some real tension being teased here between 
um, the chief judge in Dread, which is not, I can't stress enough, not appearing anywhere in like 2000 AD or other Dread adventures. Like they're, they're, they're rock solid elsewhere. You know, this is just starting here. Right. Well, Jiretz has that phobia. He's got a, he's reaching out. He's got to get it solved, find solutions. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, it. it's just that like we, we are starting to see Magruder getting paranoid here as well, because otherwise this is ju- like, if she wasn't sort of rising to meet Dredd's anti-robot racism, then that's what the story would be about. Just Dredd not being willing to accept these robots. But instead, we're basically supposed to support Dread and see Magruder's continued insistence on using them as signs of her being unfit to be a chief judge, Eli. Right. Yeah, it it, it is weird because it does backfire. In my mind, it does seem like Dread has this paranoia because the robot he shot seems like it was perfectly fine. Like Agreed. it actually did a did a great job. It did uh, steal his kill kill at the end, which is you know that's rude. But uh, yeah, but you know, I mean, robots aren't supposed to be polite. They're robots, right. you know. Right. You get your human friends for that. <laughs> yeah, I will say that. Like, you know, I understand Dred's worry of just like, especially if you don't like robots. The idea of robots, especially being able to shoot to kill and stuff, is pretty disturbing. Um, but somebody's got to enforce these laws in Mega City One, and if we right. keep having apocalypses, we can't rely on humans because right. it takes like fifteen years to train a judge. Plus, you get some asshole like Dread who can roll up on your like final assessment and kick you out completely. Right. Like he does it a lot, you know. And that's that. just not a good long-term human resources policy. Exactly. You know? What is it? Uh, there was one other quick note. Um, Judge, uh, I mean, um, uh, Me- Mechanismo 5 mm-hmm. uh, had a similar policy to Judge Death. I think they would have got along. Um uh, Absolutely, yeah. Death. He's definitely in the uh, in the all lawbreakers must die mode mm-hmm. that right. so many um, crooked judges get into. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Listen, it's the end. Re- it's the end. It's the end. It's it's where all judges end up ideologically eventually. Eli, I think right. it's one of those, right. one of now, those die a hero or live long enough to become the villain kind right. of situation. Oh, st- still know. waiting to see what Anderson turns out to be. You know, that's uh, yeah. I think so. we'll be finding out pretty soon now because she quit right and right. is now went to Mars the spaceways. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. She was on Mars. Now she's in in space. We'll find out in ninety four. Actually, nice, but. Speaking of the fate of Judge Anderson, ah, yeah, 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 let's go to our second Dread story, which is, it's a dreadful life. I guess it won't do reverb for that one, but second Dread story, it's a dreadful life. <laughs> uh, script by Jim Alexander and Robbie Morrison, art robot Colin McNeil, letting robot John Beeston. Always love to see Colin McNeil drawn these Dreads, got a fun style. And a new story here. Dread seems to wake up and find a bunch of criminals in front of him doing crimes. Lawlessness is the only law, they shout. Dread opens fire, but his lawgiver just shoots out like a bang flag. You know what I'm talking about. Those flags that says bang. The criminal, one of the criminals in question is that no good sky surfer chopper, but he's just here to introduce the real host of this story. Also speaking of Judge Death, actually, it's Judge Death. Here, wearing a top hat and tails with a red book under his arm. Judge Dredd, this is not your life. Which is like, this is your life was this old TV show, Eli, where they'd sort of like, 
have people from your past show up and just kind of say nice things about you, basically. This is not your life, so whatever. And I guess it's also, it's a wonderful life, because, or it's not a wonderful life, because this is... The story of uh, the world of Mega or the, or the world of Judge Dredd if Judge Dredd had not had not been born. Nice hitting him not with a Christmas Carol. Exactly, yeah, or uh, yeah, it's a wonderful life, I guess. Actually, because the Christmas Carol is sort of past, present, future, and it's oh, a wonderful right. life is if you've never existed. Uh, I, you know, I don't think I've seen that one, but I'm about to learn. Let's get into it. Yeah, check it out. <laughs> I mean, it's it's it, it, it's a it's a classic, and because it's specifically Christmas themed, of course, very appropriate mm. for this end of the year issue you know mm. <laughs> christmas carol's fine i think it's pretty good there was a point when i was a kid where it was in the public domain and so every tv channel would play it at mm. least twice during the christmas season just to fill up time and stuff like that so it was, it was very ubiquitous at that point um but yeah where am I at? Oh, God. Okay, so we see the beleaguered citizens of Mega City 2 as the evil judge Rico holds the cure for Tutti Fruity hostage with the help of his buddy Spikes Harvey Rotten and the T-Rex. And a T-Rex being taunted by the alien tweak on a string. This is sort of an alternate version of the first big Dread epic, The Cursed Earth, where Dread brought... um. The cure to a deadly disease across the post-apocalyptic um, United States, sort of to Mega City 2 on the West Coast. Here it's been done by his evil clone brother, Rico, who's now holding it hostage to become the chief judge of Mega City 2, basically. But Dread killed Rico. Not in this world. Dread's not very clear. Dredd is also not seen a cri- uh, has not seen It's a Wonderful Life and has trouble figuring out the concept that's being explained here. Um... Meanwhile, Mega City One Judge Cal is furious that his deputy ju- um, Judge Fish isn't doing something right. He's so angry he has fish fried up for dinner, but then chokes to death on a bone. And Judge Cal was this uh, evil chief judge that took over in the city that Dread also beat in a very early story. It's sort of you know these these classic villains that Dread defeated, not ate, not actually being defeated because he wasn't there to do so. <laughs> Similarly, we go to the grave of Cassandra Anderson, which Death makes fun of because since she has so many S's in her name, it's very hard for him to say. Um, And Dredd couldn't save Anderson at one specific time, so she died. And, you know, there's kind of a a touching moment or a, a, I don't know, they sort of lampshaded, but Dredd sort of goes to Anderson's grave and says, she was a good judge. And and, uh, Death's like, isn't there, might there be something more between you two? But Dredd's just like, she was a good judge. That's all. (laughs) Stop writing that fanfic, he seems to imply. (laughs) Um, Then they flash to Judge Death, who is loose in in the Dreadverse, personally killing his way across the world. But it is one of these things where, like, you know, he has to take time to sentence everything to death, you know, say his catchphrase and then kill it. So, you know, <laughs> he's killing a lot of things, but it's going to take him several hundred years before he kills everything on Earth. And even that's assuming that there's no reproduction in the meantime, you know. It's a tough job. Sort of a burn on Judge Death here. He's lost some of his uh, mystique, I'd say. <laughs> right. 
Meanwhile, the Angel Gang is living high on the hog. They've taken over Texas City with the help of the judge child in a jar. And there's an enslaved topless Judge Hershey serving them drinks. Oh, the indignity. (laughs) They've even stolen and remodeled the Statue of Justice so that it's got uh, cybernetic facial appliances like the evil mead machine angel. Oh, no. Next time. All is revealed as we'll figure out what's going on. Why Dred's having this vision, what it means, and presumably how he's going to kick the ass of whoever's responsible, Eli. Like you do. Right. That's fun. No choice but to. Absolutely. It does feel um, a little – they're doing the thing where the world's just a little bit different. Like I always – Yeah. It's always a weird feeling where you're like – it almost feels like – to quantify a person's existence in a couple key actions, it's always like yeah, oh. definitely. Yeah, I mean that's that's very much. I mean, even just what it, it's a wonderful life is, right, you right. know, like some kid that he saved when he was when he was younger, you know, mm. or like us, um, like the him get, telling someone something that sort of was a fork in the road, and so now they're like a drunk because he wasn't mm. there to like you know mm. pull him up, pull him up by their bootstraps or whatever. Mm. Right? You know? Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> that that kind of thing. And you know, and for someone like Dread, who of course has um, you know being the protagonist of a comic for so many years, there's so many inflection points where like only he would have been successful in mm-hmm. scenario X, Y, and Z. You know, right. that removing him from the timeline does have some pretty major changes. Right, right. Anyway. <laughs> On the other hand, speaking of uh, things that you can't change because mm-hmm. they're just real weird, mm-hmm. let's talk about story two, Creep. Uh, script robot Cy Spencer, art robot Kevin Cullen, lettering robot Gordon Robson. So last episode, we saw a hunting party from Mega City 1 taunt weird-looking mutant... A weird-looking mutant called the Creep, and now it's fighting back. It's killed two of them and taken their rest captive, and is apparently in charge of some sort of underground, like death cult kind of thing. Like people are tied, like the one of them suspended over some kind of spiky pit in the middle of a weird castle or temple with a big baby sphinx stone statue and stuff like that. It's the dance of the mad. We'll have so much fun with childlike. Glee, the creep, lowers one of the hunters onto these spikes, while other hunters are with some weird sewer goblins who say the creep is a bad man that kills them too. And man, it looks like the creep is making one of the hunters lower the other ones onto those spikes and the spikes of a bunch of snakes and scorpions and stuff like that. And there's just a it's just a pit of deadly deadly S's, Eli. Spikes, snakes, and scorpions. <laughs> right. <laughs> um the uh the goblin mutants tell the uncaptured hunter that the creep has their friends and they resolve to go save them. At one of those supervillain type dinners, you know, where you sort of sit on both opposite ends of a long table and the villain like taunts you and whatever else. Um, <laughs> the creep taunts Danny, one of the hunters. The judges don't know he's here. He's constantly being made fun of at home. Stay with me and we'll dance and be happy. Danny calls the creep mad. Um, and in response, the creep pulls at his face and like distends his eyeballs all weird. And then shoots one of his own guys because, you know, that's what you do when someone says you're crazy. You kill one of your own dudes, establish that you're evil as well. Right. right. That'll show him. Anyway, join my gang. It'll be fun. 
<laughs> Meanwhile, one of the uncaptured hunters, Reynolds, is sneaking into the creep's hideout. He finds Danny's dad locked into a steel birdcage kind of thing. And the creep is offering Danny a choice. Join him and his friends go free. Or, you know, die horribly, I guess. Danny agrees and the creep licks Danny's face, his tongue secreting a paralyzing agent. Gross. Um, anyway, there's... they. Um, his minions are building a bonfire as Creep goes to meet the others, pretending to be one of their number, then setting off a bomb and burying Reynolds under some rubble. Later, the other hunter is eating another one of these fancy supervillain meals served by the Creep as Danny looks on. Tied to a wheelchair in clown makeup? I I don't know. And oh, geez. What I do know, Eli, is that that fancy pork supper turns out to be human meat. And then the rest of the food is also poisoned, which also kills this sort of extra hunter guy. There's just a lot of... A lot of sort of super villainy death going on here. It's not great. Right. Very th- theatrical as well. Very like, ha. Absolutely. Yes. A lot of like, ah, oh, you think you've won, but this is actually my my ruse and you're double fucked. That kind of stuff. Um, Danny cries in his clown makeup as a surviving hunter crawls out of the at rubble with his rifle and angry look on his face. So Reynolds, or sorry, one of the other hunters, not Reynolds, is strapped to a table as the creep dressed as a doctor says soon he'll kill Danny and feed him to his pet alligator that we also see. (laughs) Meanwhile, uh, Reynolds is gunning down mutants and running through the creep's village and stuff. And the creep tearfully apologizes to Danny as Reynolds arrives at the creep sanctum. There, the mutant tearfully apologizes to Reynolds and it's like, oh, and uh, uh, like, please, I've done such terrible things. You should kill me. And Danny also says, yeah, yeah, kill him. Take him out. Um, But as the creep stumbles forward and puts his head to the barrel of Reynolds' gun, a tiny voice that says, actually, the creep is Danny. It's a trick. Please don't shoot me. Reynolds isn't fooled, though, and shoots the creep. And then when he goes to get Danny, that young man pulls a gun and puts it in Reynolds' mouth. And then the page goes black. It was a trick. Ah, tricksy creeps. Anyway, we go. It was all just a ruse by the creep who's now relaxing after a hard day of murder and mayhem before a mirror and stuff. And, you know, he reflects that it's still a lonely existence being the invulnerable god king of the uh, Mega City One sewers. As we see that, um, I think it's Danny's head has been grafted onto the body of his pet alligator that now comes running in. Uh, this is a whole thing. The creep will return in April of next year. Yeah, that w- was a weird one. Uh, and I'm wondering, does creep have, is, is he a god? Is he just doing whatever he wants to do? He just kind of makes stuff up and it happens. Cause I feel like he's a psychic or got some other kind of soup, like vague soup, like ill-defined superpowers, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, a lot of his trickery seemed masturbatory. It was kind of just like no yes. one was trying to do any of this stuff. And he's like, aha, but did you know this? He's like, no, I wasn't. I didn't think that was the yeah. case. I also wasn't trying to do it. And <laughs> yeah, uh, this story was, was, was very much just like. 
some weirdo, like watching some weirdo play sadistic mind games, basically. That's what the story is. (laughs) And there wasn't like, you know, and everybody, you know, everybody else dies at the end, all that stuff. It's kind of a a deliver, like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of feel, Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. Or I guess deliverance as well. Sort of these, this sort of genre of horror movies that I don't really like to watch very much, if I'm being honest, (laughs) because they're unpleasant. You know, I'm not not super into the unpleasantness, Eli. Right, right. But speaking of terrifying tales, let's continue with story three, Hark and Burr. So script robot size Spencer, art robot Dean Ormstrom, letting robot Fiona Stephenson. So Hark and Burr, Cursed Earth. Antique dealers are gathering antique mirrors from the house of an obvious vampire that's been killing hamsters all over town and then burrs on the run from a mass of vampire hamsters. Vampsters? Vampsters, Vampires? Yes. Something something like that. I, They're coming out of the... Yeah. Okay, you're, you're a vampsters person, Eli? Yes. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all coming out of the cemetery of Mr. Ariat's house. And I should say that since our last episode, a friend of the show, Eamon, has informed me that this character's named Ariat is a reference to the um, U- famous UK veterinary surgeon, James Harriet, who was like a very famous vet and like around England, I guess, sort of doing, he had like TV shows and things like that, mm, just telling yeah. people about animals and whatever else. I, yeah, I was like, was it a connection with hamsters in particular, or maybe that's just an, an aside Yeah, Terry, well, I, I feel like they're just sort of pets, and then we're sort mm-hmm. of making jokes about about hamsters mm-hmm. in general for some reason. I think, I feel like, feel like this editorial team has decided that talking about hamsters is funny. Fair enough, I say, I guess. Um... But yeah, so Ariat is surprised by all this and has everyone go hide in his mansion, sealing the door shut. He explains that indeed he is a vampire, duh, but he couldn't bear to kill humans with his vampire powers um, or any animal, in fact, except for hamsters because he hates hamsters. But he's got the he's now run into that problem that vampires have where, you know, when they drink people's blood, they turn them into vampires. And so now that's happened to these hamsters that that he's killed. You see what I'm talking about? Um, Anyway, the hamsters burst in and mob the vampire, seemingly just wanting to be his friends. But he sort of hides from them. He's allergic from hamsters. And so he falls and then eventually falls off the side of a staircase, landing on a bunch of wooden lumber, which go through his heart and stake him. Oh, he's been staked. Oh, no. The hamsters are pissed. But but Burr thinks fast and pulls out a hamster running wheel. It's exorcise time. That's exercise with an O in there. You see what I'm talking about. Oh, yes. They lead the vampsters back to the backyard where they go back into their graves and are interred. The day is saved and in the spring there will be some lovely tulips growing, Eli. Why? Because you always get tulips from hamsters damned. Woo! Mm-hmm. It's because right. Amsterdam, right. like in Holland, where they where they grow tulips. You see what mm-hmm. I'm talking about? Yes. It's yeah. a it's a pun. Right. Oh, it's the that's the scariest part <laughs> of the story is the punning punsmanship. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. They definitely like their word jokes and the yes. Absolutely. This is very much very much feels like 
this one might have started off with the punchline and then worked their way backwards right. to yeah. figure out <laughs> exactly. where the rest of these jokes might be, you know. Right. Yes. Because, uh, yeah, historically, it doesn't have a lot of uh, weight to it. It is that there was a vampire and some vampire hamsters. It's fine now. Don't worry about it. So it's, Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah we're, we're, we're in and out here. I'm fine with it. I feel like we can wrap this one up. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, that's it. And, and that's it for this one. But Harkin Burr will be back in a couple episodes. Anyway, we're about halfway through, Eli. Good time. So let's pause briefly to talk about all the non-story stuff. Covers, editorials, and dreadlines. So issue 42, we're halfway through volume two of the Judge Dread magazine, 83 issues in, in, in total this volume. And this cover is an ass load of words. It's like, you know, it's just, it's just, just paragraph format for the contents of the issue. And this is a parody of a cover of the Lad Mag Arena in England, which had a very similar cover to this, like sort of, it was the sex issue and sort of talking about the big article features in there in sort of a paragraph format and stuff. Um, at first I thought this was, this was an attempt to save money by not paying for like an artistic cover, you know, right. like we are I'm not paying for no covers, but actually at the end of the prog, you can see what the full cover would have been, which is Ian Gibson drawing the U S sex team showing off their medals and stuff like that. Hmm. So they had the cover. They just decided that they wanted to try to, I don't know, be hip and cool by uh, copying this existing cover as well. Oh, and thanks for, to the uh, 2080 Megaverse for helping me figure out what that was because it was hard for me to – it was hard to Google like sex magazine words or something right. like that, you know, yes. figure out the, the keywords. But folks sent me the original version. I appreciate it. <laughs> Um, the editorial announces that the Judge Dredd movie, which is coming in 95, will be filmed in the UK, and that director Danny Cannon is a longtime 2080 fan. Look for the movie in May 1995, though it will actually come out in June. Um, and then in Dreadlines, I'm going to admit something, Eli, that I'm not paying super close attention to the contents of the letter pages because it's just a lot of words right. it's words providing commentary about the comics and i'm doing that on my own i don't need outside help you know <laughs> <laughs> burn you and me are are providing that commentary i should say come right. on <laughs> but um i guess in issue 38 these jer these guys uh matt nixon and solano who are very sort of who will be long running letter writers and very critical of the comics. Um, they wrote in and just had some, had some serious words about why, um, why the judge red magazine sucks so much basically. <laughs> and so now there's a bunch of letters responding to those previous statements. It's always um, tough when you get uh, yeah. people saying something sucks because it almost seems like, you really like it to pay, put in the time and effort to actually go through all of it. Yeah. No, it's absolutely like, this feels like the stuff that would, that will be on internet message boards in like mm. a year. Mm -hmm. Like it's only in the pages of the magazine because mm -hmm. it's 1993 and you know, right. not everybody has AOL yet, basically. Mm. <laughs> or, Britain online. I don't know what you call AOL in England, but that right. that kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about, right? right. 
<laughs> but it's very much that where sort of, you know, someone comes on the board and is like, you know, hey, I'm on the I'm on the knitting board and let me tell you guys, knitting sucks. And then the whole board activates like, no, knitting's awesome, you know, and back and forth like they, that. They didn't even have a word for trolls back then. They were just like. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. And although I should say that I thought it was interesting that they got um, – Missionary man writer Gordon Rennie, like one of the actual people that was critiqued in the letter to write in and say, like, mm-hmm. you guys suck. Like, I'm fine. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's three pages of letter here. So it, it definitely mm-hmm. did. Three pages of letter. So it did definitely drive engagement. I'll say that much. <laughs> Dreadlines also has a comic strip by Robert McCallum where black and bl- uh where black and blue Peter and blue Peter is a UK uh, te- uh, kids show, which is about arts and crafts projects and stuff. Mm-hmm. But Black and Blue Peter makes a Mean Machine Angel costume only for the real mean to show up and headbutt that kid out of existence. (laughs) Issue 43, Metal Mayhem. Dread shows down against a giant monstrous mechanismo drawn by Chris Halls. I like this one a lot. It's, you know, the mechanismo is really cool. It's really big and threatening and stuff. The painted... And the painted style and the exaggerated muscles give it a very Simon Bisley feel. But I can't help but notice that Dredd is missing basically all of his pads. He's got no shoulder pads. He's got no elbow pads or nothing. Very nude Judge Dredd doing this fight here. I don't like that. Right. Unacceptable. Come on. He's got this kit. You got to put the kit on. Yeah, And Mechanism has a a weird skull face, like something about how the um, Mm -hmm. lower jaw is connected to the the middle of the face. Makes it look very skeleton-like. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's, It's been villained up. By like mm-hmm. 75%, you know. Right. <laughs> also, there's just so many words that it's like, you know, this thing is 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 informative to within an inch of its life as well, mm-hmm. just in terms of how much text we've got. There's also a bunch of contests in this one for both a the new Dread novel and to win original artwork from the magazine for completing the new this year's reader survey, which we'll get re- results of in a coming episode. There, yeah, there's also an excerpt from this coming Dread novel. This one's about the cursed, it's called Cursed Earth Asylum and it's written by Dave Bishop. It's focused on, on a Judge Anderson and has a journey through the cursed earth in the excerpted pages. There's just one page of Dreadlines this issue, probably because they need space for surveys and excerpts and stuff. And things are getting very meta as there's sort of more people are compl- are addressing specific complaints by uh, Nixon and Solano, including some guy who used to write for the uh, industry mag Dreadlines as well. <laughs> Finally, issue 44, what if Dread had never existed, asks the cover, as we see the lawman and a whole rogues gallery of uh, baddies on the cover, all painted by Greg Staples. And then... This is the last issue of the year, and it looks like they're taking that um, milestone to do a revamped layout for the Meg. You can kind of see that like they've still got these cover pages before each story, but they look different than the ones in the previous issue. Instead of sort of having having an issue from the comic be sort of framed uh, within a, um, a page layout... Now it looks like that they they're taking either a character or part of the comic and sort of having that appear sort of on a white space basically, um, with that same sort of background and story so far information that that's previously been in the mag. 
Uh, the comic ends with two pages of dread lines. One letter co- uh, compliments Shimura, and another one says it's not Japanese enough, really. And there's more mm-hmm. discussion about the level of violence in the comic, and then also letters saying being very angry about people discussing the level of violence in the comic. It's a snake eating its own tail, Eli. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's all that, and then the winners of the previous dread novel contest, and that brings us to the end of all this non-story stuff. Tired of non-story stuff, Eli. I like story stuff, if you ask me. And to that end, let's have our final big story for this issue. It's Story for the Taxidermist. It's gifted by John Wagner, our robot Ian Gibson, learning robot Annie Parkhouse. So we're we're back at the Future Olympics in uh, Nepal in 2116. As judging begins for the compulsory round of taxidermy, we saw... Jake Sardini from Mega City One do his own version of it last episode, but sadly he gets middling scores because his work is once again technically proficient, but sadly unimaginative. And since this round makes up 35% of metal scoring, he could be in trouble going into the final rounds. Um, We see... um, other people's dinner for four based scene. We see one with that's a bunch of picnickers being attacked by a swarm of wasps. Um, and the winner for this round is um, a scene of uh, just a bunch of vampires attacking a um, a helpless uh, dude. You know, one one uh, including several uh, topless lady vampires. All right. Right. What is it? I uh, think the guy's supposed to be a vampire hunter because he's got a stake in him one hand and a hammer in the other. So I assume. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes, it's the sex appeal gets way more points than uh, uh, the uh, accuracy. Yeah, more more prosaic scenes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so yeah, at the end of round two, Sardini has fallen to third place. But in the end, there's less than half a point between first place and fifth place. So it's really going to come down to this final event. And even the slightest differences in scores could signal victory or defeat. (laughs) Meanwhile, a blizzard on Everest spells problems for the mountaineering team as the commentator looks on from a hermetically sealed nightclub viewing station (laughs) full of debauchery and so forth. And Mega City One has taken the gold in chicken plucking and thus is on the top of the overall medal race. The lead commentator checks in with the uh, Mega City One's contestant in the swearing contest, who is quite foul-mouthed. Um, and then the we see the sky surfing event is about to start as well. But before that, let's have a quick interview with the gold medal winning Mega City One sex team. All right. All right. Well, we've been waiting for. Absolutely. <laughs> They're very happy with their win and say the usual stuff about giving credit to their trainers and coaches and stuff, but then get back to some non-competitive sex, it would seem. Right. You got to have your hobbies aside from your professional stuff. Hey, I mean, when your work is your ho- – you know, if you if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. Mm. You know, we all know that. It's deep. <laughs> Think about it. Come on. Um, so – um, Sorry. Uh, backstage, Sardini is drained from the event. It's taken a lot out of him, both mentally and physically. He goes for a walk, reeling from the um, artistry of these younger taxidermy contestants. 
Um, and he also can't get over the fact that that beggar he talked to the previous night was one of the bodies that showed up for him to taxidermy in the uh, event today, which is a very weird coincidence. Um, he also remembers the words of um, Guru Mahama, who he talked to, that he should be true to himself. Meanwhile, a bunch of sky surfers fly by as part of the race, but one gets knocked in the head by another and falls to his death right in front of Sardini. More death, he seems. A bad omen, perhaps. He feels full of, ap- of sudden apprehension and walks back to a hotel. As we see, some army guys are watching him through binoculars and say, we'll pick him up tonight. Oh no, that's ominous. <laughs> That night, Sardini gets a phone call. Guru Mahama wants to see him. No time to explain. Tell no one. (laughs) Sardini dresses and heads out. But as he does, he's grabbed by Major Kush, who's one of the officers of the uh, Nepalese government and has these sort of cat-like, cat-cat whisker-like mustaches. He's from the army. And the military's out in force. We see them rounding up the city's beggars and stuff, despite that we learned previously the guru said to tolerate them. Um, in the palace, Sardini is escorted down a long corridor where he finds the dead body of Guru Mahama. Oh, no. Sardini's shocked, and it seems he's had one last disagreement with the generals, the military hunter that, ro- that rules this place and has been killed. But it'd be really bad press if he died during the Olympics. And he's got to give his final or his annual address tomorrow. So they need Sardini to taxidermy his body so he can give that address. Complete with animation so he can speak it out and stuff like that. And if he doesn't, Sardini will be killed too. Oh, but he doesn't do animation. You'd better learn. That kind of stuff. Um, It seems that this might be the intertwined fates that the guru mentioned the last time they spoke. Sardini's not a brave man, so he gets to work. Without advanced tools, he's forced to do things like, or he's forced to do things the old-fashioned way, like create a death mask for the guru. The animated frame is brought out, set to match the guru's size and movements precisely, complete with voice, and his skin is fitted onto it. Sardini does not finish until well into the morning, but the replica, of course, is perfect. The only question is, asks Major Kush, what to do with Sardini. He uh, pushes a gun out, but in the end, the risk of Sardini talking and explaining this plot is outweighed by the damage that a dead competitor in the Olympics would do for the country overall. So Sardini's let go, but warns that if he tells anybody, then they're going to get freaking murdered so be careful right keep your mouth shut eventually sardini makes it home where his part where his uh, assistant hedda asked where he was she's been very worried but he just wants to go to sleep lamenting what he's done sardini slits sleeps fitfully um he watches the news reports of the guru's address the iron fist of the robot skeleton inside the guru's skin not unlike the iron fist of the military now gripping this country, Eli. <laughs> Ooh, ah, it's a metaphor. <laughs> uh, Sardini hopes that the guru's sanguine attitude to his pending death when they met the other night means that there's some good or larger design that might come from this seemingly evil deed that he's done. He also remembers the first uh, story he was in in 2000 AD when um, he was 
he was miraculously saved from being arrest while disposing of the skin of a dead mobster where Dredd caught him, but was just kind of like, uh, you gotta, you know, be more careful with your trash, Gramps, head home, you know. <laughs> Just b- barely made it through that time, and maybe he'll make it through again. We also get a quick shot of his butt as he takes a shower. Right, you know, seeing all these, seeing all these parts, Eli. <laughs> Later at the cafeteria, Hedda has lined up the germ, a German taxidermist who's out of contention to give Sardinia a crash course in animation, but he refuses. Sardini says he's done all the animation he'll ever do in his life. You know, animating the guru and stuff. Oh, he doesn't explain that part. Um, Hedda, um, but, you know, we Hedda says once more he'll be disqualified if he doesn't animate the bodies. And when he says that might be okay, she once more asks him what happened last night. But he won't answer. It would put her in danger. And who would believe him anyway? In the days before the event, contestants head to the Mount of the Eagles, where the Nepalese expose the dead to natural decomposition to find the bodies for the final. Hedda um, goes in Sardini's place and notes that there's a lot of fresh bodies, many of them with single gunshots to the back of the head, if you take my meaning. They were killed by the oppressive government, etc. Um that's the meaning. <laughs> <laughs> Up to 12 bodies are allowed for the final display and Hedda's choosing them. And I'll note that several sets, several times so far, she's been like Gibson is, has changed the art style for her to make her be very serious and severe. Mm-hmm. I feel like definitely shorter hair and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Hedda greatly wants to help Sardini. And when he sort of is morose, she chides him for giving up for and for letting her, the city, and most of all himself down. She begs him to go down fighting instead of just surrendering. Even if you won't do animation, don't roll over like a dog. When she she storms off and Sardini reflects on what he's experienced here. And in the end, he does decide to go down fighting. He furiously writes down a bunch of notes and goes to hand them to Hedda, who we actually see in her uh, in her room is bald as a cue ball and just has like four or five different wigs and hat combinations that she wears. Yeah, so much easier. Absolutely. Who has the time to actually hairstyle you like? Come on, just get that wig on there. That's what they do in the movies, like literally, you know, TV shows too, as, as, as I understand it. Um. Anyway, he gives her a list of paper of his props for the contest tomorrow. It doesn't seem like it's a lot, but also seems like it might be hard to find. So we'll see what it turns out to be. I guess they're keeping it mysterious. The two embrace and we cut to the next day. We're in the final round of the staring contest as well. 17 hours in as Laser Eyes Bolton is showing down against Carlos Lopez Domingo of the Andean Conurb. 148 years old. He's the oldest person in the Olympics this year. And they're just staring at each other like crazy. (laughs) Meanwhile, the weather is clearing up on Everest. So we should be able to see how the mountaineering is going. But before all that, let's go to the start of the taxidermy event. The start, the uh, the uh, you know begin is called, and Hedda, who's wearing a nice bowler hat, wishes Jake Sardini luck as we go into the finals. Next time, it's explosive. Mm. You don't want that in your corpse, or maybe they're going back to the sex Olympics. 
It's well, a, you know, they're they're what you call it. I mean, they're they're doing something. I think it's I'm <laughs> interested to see what the final what Sardini's final um presentation is and stuff like that, you know. Mm. And everybody else's. And what happens in the staring contest. I'm on pins and I'm on like tenor hooks for <laughs> this, uh, the, the the taxidermists. I got a lot of balls in the air that I'm very excited to see right. how it turns out, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I'm really enjoying this story. I really like the like I think it's interesting to see this tran- like some of the actually I feel like there's been some transition in the art a little bit as we've gotten into mm-hmm. the story and things become more serious I feel like yeah um and I feel like the art style has become a little, a little bit less exaggerated and stuff as we've reached these n- notes in the story yeah actually that was something I uh, that uh, came to my attention the uh, when I was reading it is that um, some of the characters are drawn in different ways or at least colored in different ways. So it mm-hmm. seems like it's my kind of mixed medium. So some people are very flat. Some people have a lot of dimension. Some people have a lot of yeah. tones on their face. So yeah, it is very interesting how they're going through it. I, I do wonder if there's an overarching like narrative purpose or if it's just the artist likes drawing these people in these different, using these different techniques. Um, I think it does kind of matter. Yeah. Like just what, what notes he's, he's hitting with them and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Like it, it does actually kind of remind me actually of kind of a, um, like a manga style, I guess, you mm-hmm. know, where sort of like the, the level of detail and style right. of drawing that a character get v- varies very much on the tone of the scene yes. as much as sort of <laughs> stuff about the character themselves, you know? Exactly. Um, but yeah, narratively, I'm, I've been really interested in, um, how they're kind of taking this more, uh, political turn it's like more not political but it's like a little mm-hmm. more serious it was just hey fun wacky olympics and then now they're kind of getting into the powers that be and what who controls the what and what yeah like, huh very interesting didn't yeah. expect that yeah exactly yeah it's, it's not just about the events there's sort of an ar- an overarching like narrative or something like that like like it's it's not just winning gold it's also the fate of this nation they're in or something right. like that as well exactly and uh i'm excited to see because it um they're doing the thing where um for uh championships or tournament arcs usually can kind of predict how it's going to happen or who's going to win usually it's the protagonist is going to win somehow but um, sure. they're doing it more interesting where I'm not sure. I'm like, I don't know who's going to win. Like, I, Winning or losing, you know, could mean different things. And this world seems a little harsher than uh, I originally yeah, had sto- taken it. Yeah, and the story's melancholy enough that you could definitely see him losing in mm-hmm. in the end, you mm-hmm. know, like or or like sacrificing a win for some greater good or something like mm-hmm. that, too. There's a couple different like right. in terms of if you're reading it. From a meta level, there's a couple <laughs> different possible outcomes here, right. you know. <laughs> Which I, I'm always reading it from a meta level. That's the only way I read. No, well, yeah, uh, <laughs> but like, but 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 you know what I mean. We're yeah, sort yeah. of you can you know you read a story, and if you really want to pull back from it, you're like, mm-hmm. well, of course, of right. course, Spider-Man's gonna win. He can't like right. the world can't end in a Spider-Man movie. That's ridiculous. You know, right? right. No, that that's a good point. <laughs> but like you know, I think most of us sort of suspend that knowledge because we're trying mm. to, have, you know, we're we're here to have fun, you know, right. whatever. Yeah. But I think there's ways to tell a story where you can see, like, oh, like I don't know because you mm-hmm. know we're setting like the tropes that we're dealing with or whatever means that you know the protagonist doesn't have to win in this one. Right. You know? Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a uh, that's why I always hate when the world's in danger. 
They're like, we got to save the world from mm-hmm. this thing. I'm like, you're going to save it. Don't don't worry about yeah. it. This writer isn't going to write the end of the world in their story. It's so it's, it's ballsy when they do. The right. record. <laughs> I haven't seen it so far. Oh, I guess Attack on Titan did it. Attack on Titan was so far like one of the few that I'm like, when they're like, we're going to go destroy the world. I'm like, wow, they mean it. This could really happen, guys. They could actually destroy I mean, the world. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I've seen some. I feel, I've definitely seen some animes where or or mangas and stuff where you kind of get to that final that like year long final arc where mm-hmm. the whole thing just becomes one big bat, one big earth destroying battle. Right. It's like it's like it's like what's left yeah, at this right. point. <laughs> right. We won, but at what cost? Yeah, with with taxidermist done, which is a pretty long story. Now we're just gonna hop into a couple one-offs here, starting with Story Five: Missionary Man. Gift about Gordon Rennie, art about Gary Marshall, learning about Annie Parkhouse. So in the yeah, in the old in the wild west of um the world of Judge Dredd, preacher Kane and his deputy are riding the cursed earths, right and wrongs, and so forth. They arrive at the town of Nevermind, and there's some commotions a going ons. They stump into the local saloon, which is a wreck, and see that there's a dude sitting at the bar, and he is a dadgum zombie. Missionary man shoots him in the gut, but it has no effects. And besides, in the end, he ain't hurting nobody with his hard drinking zombie ways. We learned that he's a zombie that was raised as part of that uh, Judgment Day zombie apocalypse, as you'll recall. But instead of eating brains, he just went back to drinking. And we learned that um, the deputy was like slept through Judgment Day. Meanwhile, <laughs> Preacher Kane just blasted a lot of zombies. <laughs> um. Anyway, the zombie does say some hard truths about outrunning the ghosts of your past, which seems to deeply affect the missionary man. But that's all we really learn at this point, just that he's got he's sensitive about it. And so the two decides to part ways, not really as friends, but just as fellow travelers in the cursed earth and head off into that lonesome prairie. And that's it for that story. Missionary Man will return in April of 1994 as well, along with Creep. Yeah, it looks like they were just hinting at stuff. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I do like the, the zombie ended up with a like a spit bucket under him so that he could still drink. And when it falls out of his stomach, as it does, uh, it just gets caught. But yeah, re-drink it. Yeah. Yeah, this is very much felt, felt like kind of a setup episode of kind of being like, hey, like, don't forget about Missionary Man. He's got a mysterious past. Be right. aware of it. That right. kind of stuff. Exactly. <laughs> And I guess on the topic of mysterious pasts, we can go to Story 6, Pan-African Judges. Script robot Paul Cornell, art robot Siku, letting robot Gordon Robson. Uh, First time in the podcast for uh, Paul Cornell, who's writing this one. And we're in Africa, 2116. At the same time as 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 this is coming out over in a, on Space Spinner two thousand in two thousand A D, Dread is traveling to Luxor, which is the version of Egypt and has a very ancient Egypt sort of inspired uh, art style, basically. But what's the rest of the continent up to? I ask. Let's find out by going to. <laughs> A shuttlecraft where a woman sips coffee and reflects on her journey to Africa. She's a Britsit judge named Becky Steele, possibly related to Armitage's partner, Treasure Steele. Mm. 
and it seems she was in some kind of ambush and is now headed south to Africa. We then turn to a map of Pan-Africa itself. It's stated as accurate to January 1, 2116, credited to Cornell and Brighton PLC. Got a whole bunch of sort of future Africa stuff, I guess. Um, We see uh, basically the map area of uh, South Africa and Lesotho, as well as eastern Madagascar, are bright red radiation zones, as well as the Nile Valley, which we learned in the uh, in the Book of the Dead story that uh, the Nile had been nuked as well. Um, there are some big population centers that aren't actually part of South of of, of Pan Africa. One of them is in central Algeria and called Casablanca, but is nowhere near where the actual Casablanca is, which is in Morocco and sort of on the Pacific coast instead of in the Mediterranean. Anyway, um, Addis Ababa has been renamed to New Jerusalem and is a Jewish homeland, apparently. And there's also uh, Simba City, which covers um, sort of coastal Gabon and the Republic of Combo, Congo. But anyway... Everything besides that is Pan-Africa, which is split into development areas in Saharan and Sub-Saharan Africa. Or I should say also Western Africa. There's a giant Saharan super desert zone. But yeah, the capital is in Siwa in northwestern Egypt. And another big city is Adar es Salaam in its normal place. Sorry, I I just love future geography, (laughs) Eli. I love seeing how it's all set up. Right. Though I can't stress enough that this map is semi-canonical at best. Like the maps here to give you things to look at and think about what kind of story would be there. Mm. Not something to say like, oh, you can't do this because the map says it's this way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Right, right. Anyway, um, back to the story. Confirmed that uh, Becky Steele is somehow related to Treasure. And like this is told in sort of various... Like like uh, flashbacks and sort of different continuities and stuff, but I'm going to sort of fold them into one set one. Where basically, it seems that on Becky's first patrol, she was attacked and strung up by her ankles by a bunch of jerk SJS judges in like trench coats that like flashed her basically or something like that. And because of that, because there was sort of Definitely sexist and maybe some racial stuff going on here, too. She asked for a uh, transfer. At the same time, she reflects that a treasure told her that when the revolution comes, we, everyone will be split along gender lines and nothing else. So here we are. Anyway, all that to say that Becky has landed at a shuttle port in Pan-Africa, where she's met by Judge Kwame Asanagi. And his Pan-African judge uniform has like a roaring lion shoulder pad. And his other shoulder pad's got like some rhino horns on it and Mm, stuff. Right, right. And there's a lot of like kind of like claws and other like animal pieces of animal imagery sort of scattered around it, basically. Mm -hmm. He greets her and walks to their hover bikes as she remires her reflection in his armor. And here we are in Pan-Africa, I guess. Next time, Tabula Rasa. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I'm interested. I'm always interested to see parts of the Dread World, you know, and just new areas and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, um, yeah, I didn't have enough to go on to get pumped about anything. Because even when they do are like, here's this new place. I'm like, but how much are you going to tell me about this new place? Because sometimes they'll just tease me. We're in a new place, but nothing new is happening. We're not learning about anything. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, yeah, well, that's. 
Uh, I'm definitely interested to see where it goes. I'm a little leery about the fact that this seems to be an example of, um, you know, Africa just being one big country, I guess. <laughs> right, right. It's so big. When, There's so many things you, know, you put there. It's a continent that's got its own, you know, dozens of yeah. hist- histories and peoples and traditions and stuff like that. Right. So, you know. Right. But it's, it's hard. To, it's it's hard. You know, it 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 just like it's a it triggers red flags. You know, mm, although right. I'll mention that that the artist here, Siku, is Nigerian. I want to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also think we're um, uh, traumatized yeah, and, from uh, American media because America just puts things into gigantic buckets and does not differentiate them at all. But I think if you put yeah. it in some other hands, they're a little bit more culturally sensitive. You might actually get Possibly. some more interesting things, right? I don't want to give these Brits too much credit, Eli. So let's right. just, let's <laughs> just, I think it's our standard move of just uh, keep open minds and, and mm-hmm. take it as it comes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I guess speaking of other lands, which are also outside of England and may have some problems with um, cultural appropriateness. Let's go to story seven, Cal have justice. You know, I mean, just like how uh, Judge Kwame has, um, you know, rhino horns and stuff on his judge uniform, um, Judge... Judge Angus here, you know, is from Scotland and has got the kilt uniform and all that kind of stuff. Uses a sword, etc. Cal have justice. Script robot Jim Alexander. Art robot Lowell. Letting robot Any Parkhouse. Dread World Scotland. Tough Judge McBra- uh, Angus McBrain is watching the South Entry Point with Side Judge Shahalian, who appears in this comic a lot, and his name is very hard for me to spell, so I'm very unhappy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, they're watching the border, and they're both bored. And Shalian wants to uh, to go, wants to knock off early for the day. When he suddenly gets a side flash, Britsit gun runners are coming through the border checkpoint. The runners indeed are about to blast past them when McBrain jumps out and gets in their way. As their vehicle careens out of control, we learn that there's this girl. Helen Daziel, and she visits her mother every month in the wilds of uh, of Calhab, and now she's being crashed into by the gunrunner truck, and Shahalian can read her thoughts as she goes through the windshield. With the gunrunners caught, uh, McBrain demands Shahalian mind meld with Helen to keep her stable until help arrives, and so he and he does so because he's ordered, and we see him sort of going with her and experiencing her journey, sort of to the hospital and undergoing uh, surgery and stuff. But at a critical moment, Shahalian releases the mind meld with Helen, which leads to her death as sure as if he just shot her in the face. Um, McBrain asks why he did it. And all um, Shahalian will say is that he and his wife are trying for a baby, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Later, McBrain goes to meet with the chief inspector and files a report on Chihalian's actions, sort of saying, like, he, you know, what he's doing is unacceptable. But it seems that Chihalian's the only, like, empath or side judge in Calhab. And because of that, it seems the chief inspector just rips up the report once McBrain walks out. What's going on with this stuff, Eli? Very mysterious. And we'll find out probably next or we'll start to find out hopefully on our next episode as this story continues with unfinished business. Right. Yes. Very 
interesting. I'm hoping it actually makes sense. I, I have read some stories where they're like, here's why. Isn't that mysterious? And I'm like, well, upon further exploration, no. You made that up. Yeah. So I'm hoping that's not the case. But maybe, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're going through some interesting powers and um, uh, interactions that I'm like, oh, I didn't think of that. To like, oh, they want company. So go ahead. Just be in their mind with them. Right. Going and, this. and keep them stable and stuff like that right. is an like, interesting yeah. it's 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 an interesting use of psychic powers yeah. although like i i gotta say i find this art style to be nearly I- I- incomprehensible right Eli. yes that it's was <laughs> very very hard for me to make out what the heck is going on as as we go through this story yeah it was uh, yeah the art style because black and white and you know how i feel about black and white right <sighs> But yeah, the legibility is uh yeah, so loose and difficult to get through. It, to me it feels like a sketch layer, like it's like someone just kind of trying to get things down mm-hmm. and they never went back to actually ink on top of it to make it streamlined yeah. and straightforward. Right. Like, like like it feels very quickly done, yeah, and and, and, mm. and very angular and stuff like that and mm. it seems like generally you'd then go over that for <laughs> right. a final version that would be a little bit sort of easier to make out and stuff but right right but i mean it, the, the trouble i have with that um art style is that i only have two ways of uh, interacting with it one is avoid it like usually if i would just you know saw it in a, mm-hmm. in a shop and i saw that art style i'd be i'm gonna go somewhere else but uh kind because you're making me want, read all these i decided to no no <laughs> um but then the other way is um oh maybe the story is really compelling maybe that you know because mm-hmm. sometimes you get some art that's a little you know experimental but it has a really strong heart behind it so i'm hoping for that and if they let me down i'm just gonna be heartbroken and then never Fair. return hey. I mean, that's why we do the ratings at the end, you know, to sort of uh, to to praise and punish those that either are, 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 you know, reward us for our time or just simply take it away from us that never be returned again. Right. Exactly. And with that, I must ask, what are your top and bottom uh, stories for Mm. these issues? You know, volume two, 42 to 44. Right. Uh, Well, um, uh, there are a lot. Um, that are still to finish, you know, panning out. So it's like, you know, I'm still waiting to see how, uh, like that last one and the African one, like those are just starting. So although I have feelings, I'm like, Hey, you you get your shot. You go ahead and do it. But, um, uh, one thing on my bottom is a uh, creep. Um, cause it did end and I didn't like it. Uh, mm-hmm. no, it's, uh, it was, <laughs> it was, um, uh, yeah, it seemed like I didn't, learn anything and um they introduced a power system and didn't explain it like and it was a power system but it was like this guy is a shapeshifter it seemed to be yeah. the general thing he, and i have these yeah, worshipers right. he, he he can do stuff but we don't really understand what the rules of that doing stuff is right. he's just yeah. he's just way op basically right exactly More than anything and, else and we don't even know his motivation like uh it's fun when you get a pe- someone with some OP powers, but then you understand why they're doing it. And then you can kind of get behind it and form your own opinion. Like, you know, judge death. I, I can just kill people just to kill them, but I got to do this whole spiel beforehand. And here's my, uh, ideology. I'm like, okay, I understand that. But, uh, yeah. And like, you know, if you shoot fire bullets at him, you will take them out. That kind correct. of stuff. Exactly. But having a guy who's like, he does things sometimes. Why? We don't know. 
who who gets it like and like it right. feels uh and like and like <laughs> what are his limits like what how how can he be beaten like, well, he's just good like that's what it is right it's like, okay yeah yeah so it's almost like so what's the point why why why'd you make me read this um uh so yeah so that's why that one's on bottom it it jumped out at me as as we were going through it <laughs> it was like and that's the end see you next time i was like f this one uh I don't like what's going on here. Uh, oh no! Maybe it'll come back later. Maybe it'll, you know uh, someone will get in there and make me feel good about it. But yeah, yeah. I yeah. I even put it below the um, vamp vampsters. I mean, like, oh and man, that, that yeah. was just like Harkenberg. Yeah, right. That was just like, hey, there's vampire hamsters. Sometimes, all right, see you later. And I'm like, okay, fine, <laughs> whatever. Um, oh, but yeah, um, as far as top. Um, I had a couple good ones. Um, I really liked, um, and this is me getting um, uh, getting too too much of a fan. I enjoyed Mechanismo again, um, just seeing nice. Dread in a kind of a different light. Him kind of trying to get into some mm. manipulation, putting his own agenda in, and how easy that guy was to brainwash. He's like, "You shot that robot." He was like, "No, <laughs> uh, that robot shot that robot, and I shot the other robot." Well, huh? Yep. Isn't that? Because you're I cool, right? Uh, okay, yeah, I don't <laughs> <Right>. know. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, only cool guys, uh, you know, cool guys know that that's what happened. Oh, I want to be cool. All right, yeah, let's. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> I get so many people to corroborate my story that way, Eli, for sure. <laughs> uh, but I also um, uh, did, am still really enjoying the um, uh, uh, the taxidermist uh just mm-hmm. uh his his journey and what's going on in the wacky uh future olympics uh that's giving me a level of world building that i'm really enjoying and um i really care about the characters and some of the other sports that i don't think are even relevant to the plot we'll see maybe they will be <laughs> but uh yeah there's been several competitions i'm like ah, oh, yeah that is cool uh <laughs> yeah. so yeah I had watch Olympic there. chicken plucking. I feel like it's possible, right? You know. I do think the staring contest would be boring. Uh, just kind of like, oh, did they blink yet? Oh, no, no, yes. they didn't. Okay, no, I like I like comic book coverage of the staring contest where they just cut mm. back to it periodically and get real mm. weird with it. You know, right, right. Less less into the concept of an actual staring contest. Plus. I feel like, you know, they're doing it for like 17 hours, but I feel like in real life, like 15 minutes tops is how long mm-hmm. someone can go without blinking. Right. You know? they, well, they, they do those enhancement drugs that, you know, allow their eyes to moisten themselves. You know, there's a whole scandal Whoa. about it, I'm sure. Terrifying. Yeah. They're, right. they're eye doping. Right. It's ridiculous. <laughs> right. And I also uh, love the two sex Olympians uh, just kind of just being – weird and sexy all the time that's just They're very se- funny they gotta be sexy all the time they can't stop for sure <laughs> yeah. i mean i feel very similar to you eli for sure creep is way at my bottom i really didn't like this story i don't like this character i don't like that it's just sort of this like ugly tale of murder and like grossness with no comeuppance like i'm not i'm not into that like mm. one of these guys was a jerk and like shot, you know, tried to make the creep dance, and that's not cool. Mm. But you didn't have to psychologically terrorize and murder all of them for that, I guess. It doesn't right. feel like the the punishment fits the crime. Like you kill one guy, 
right. And, you know, you kill the guy that shot at you, and that's that's tit for tat. And otherwise, right. it's too much. Yeah, and also, yeah, I think it's also the uh, him doing it in weird back alleyways, like weird trickery that no one was like. It would be different. Yeah, if you a, start <laughs> uh, bringing in bringing in cannibalism and non consensual clown play and stuff like right. that. It's just <laughs> like why? It's a lot, you right. know. Like it's just a lot, right? If you, I don't know. If you want to go Death Note and have a battle of wits, I'm down with getting weird and cheeky with that. But if it's just two people, a couple people in a sewer trying to shoot you, you don't need to go through the clown makeup and the cannibalism. Right. Right. And even then, in the end, this is just sort of some superpowered god being stunting on some fools, Mm, which is moderate at best, honestly. (laughs) Right. Um, And then for my top, I got to go taxidermist. I love this taxidermist story. Mm. You know, there's all these little parts to it. I really mm-hmm. love the art. I really love the storytelling. There's sort of these inner monologues of Sardini and sort of the, you know, thoughts about and just like like you've said, just sort of the, you know, the the these tro these sports tropes, mm-hmm. you know, of the old guy who, you know, has lost a step but is crafty and there's the new ways these kids does it and he doesn't want to do it that mm-hmm. way because he's a traditionalist, but he's gotta figure out a way to win. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's sort of he's you know, bad stuff has happened, but he's def- he's he has figured something out. He's got a plan that's in motion, and we don't know what the plan is, but it's got to be something good. You got to assume. And I'm just, I'm just really excited for this one. I'm really stoked to see how this one all turns out, and it should end next up next uh, time we talk about the magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super excited. Should be good. All right, and that's the show. I hope everybody enjoyed it. As always, you can find Big Meg One on iTunes, Titch, the Google Play Store, Spotify. Or our podcast site at BigMeg1.com. Contact us at BigMeg1 at gmail.com. The 2008 forums or our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. For all those looking for Big Meg1 with one written out and you'll find us. Drop us a rating or review wherever it is you're listening to us. And suggest us if someone's looking for a cool podcast that helps us out. This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Robert Hardingham, and your friends the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd appreciate it. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash That's our podcast network. There you can support the show and get advanced episodes and come back next time as we've reached the end of the year for the magazine. And it's time for the 1993 Maggies, our year in review show. We'll be putting on our stunning ruby tuxedos to talk about our favorite stories from the past year. And we want to hear from you as well. So please send us in your nominations for the Judge Red magazine in the following categories. Best art, best writing, best overall thrill, favorite episode of the year, which is sort of, you know, issues of the magazine covered for this year. And your MVP, you know, most valuable person or player for the year of 1993. And I should also say, as always, like, these are more just sort of ways for us to talk about the year. So the nominations can be anything from a whole story or a year of someone's work to just a single panel or something like that, that really caught you. And similarly, MVP can be a real life person. It can be a character you feel like has done, you know, ha- ha- has been important for the comic in the year, but w- w- whatever else. Just trying to get some things to talk about. <laughs> so we'll see you then. And until that time, I'm Conrad, there Eli, and we are Big Meg One. It's